Hello, and welcome to another podcast from the Yale Pediatrics Junior Faculty Workgroup. My name is Jaspreet Loyal. I am a pediatric hospitalist and assistant professor in pediatrics. And my name is Anthony Porto. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist, associate professor of pediatrics, and vice chair for ambulatory operations. And I'm Kathleen Corbin. I'm a pediatric rheumatologist and assistant professor in pediatrics. Today we will discuss physician burnout. Our guest is Dr. Ron Vender, who is a professor of medicine in the section of digestive diseases. He's chief medical officer for Yale Medicine and associate dean for clinical affairs at the School of Medicine. Ron, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. The objectives for today's sessions are as follows. By the end of this session, we hope that our listeners will be able to recognize signs of physician burnout, understand specific risk factors for burnout amongst junior faculty, and understand resources available here at Yale to prevent or deal with burnout. So let's get started. Ron, can you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the topic of burnout? So I've uh, been at Yale on the full-time faculty now for 10 years. And even before I joined, I was aware of the need to address physician well-being. And I could even say caregiver well-being more broadly, but given my background, I focused on the physician. And this this interest goes back many years um, because I've worked with so many people over the years where I have personally witnessed the impact of their suffering and their emotional distress on their personal lives as well as their professional lives. And it was clear to me that we needed to do something here at Yale as well. Thank you. So. We expect that most of our listeners have heard of what we're calling burnout, and they may, they may have personally experienced it, but maybe we could start off with some basics. Could you tell us what you mean by physician well-being or burnout and describe ways in which we can identify this in ourselves or our colleagues? So I'm actually glad you asked that question because there's a difference between physician well-being and burnout. Burnout is just one form of physician distress. There's so much talk about burnout that we actually lose track of some of the other issues that are impacting us. Stress uh, among physicians is at epidemic levels. In addition to burnout, there is an alarming rate of depression, suicidal ideation, suicide. There's an entity that's somewhat sometimes referred to as second victim distress. I've become more familiar recently with uh, the problems of loneliness in a medical career, and finally, uh, more recently, even post-traumatic stress disorder. So there's any variety of issues, and burnout is just one of them. But burnout is the one that seems to be getting quite a bit of attention, and appropriately so recently. And there are three components to burnout, emotional exhaustion, cynicism, and a diminished sense of personal accomplishment so that somebody who is experiencing burnout feels exhausted. It is a type of fatigue that sleep alone does not take care of. By cynicism, uh, they begin to see patients as objects. And that's nothing new, uh, but derogatory terms or inappropriate terms that we've used to pay for patients or describing patients over the years. But it could be as simple in my field as referring to the patient in the emergency department as a bleeder as opposed to Mr. Jones. And then finally, and, and unknown to many, is a sense of a loss of meaning and a sense of accomplishment in our lives. 
Great. And you mentioned that it's get, it's something that's more in the news. We hear about burnout a lot. Is it more prevalent than it was in the past, or and you think are there any reasons for that? I think it is. The data is clear that it's more prevalent, and is that just because we're measuring it more, or it's truly more prevalent? I'm not totally sure, but as far as I can tell, and as far as most experts in the field uh, believe, it is clearly more prevalent. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. First, it has always been hard to be a doctor. We have chosen difficult careers and difficult lives, but the stresses and strains are changing and they're getting harder. And I think that is contributing. So the data is, if you go back uh, four or five years, roughly 45% of physicians in the country demonstrated burnout. And let me, let me back this up. You, they don't have all three elements necessarily. So when we use that 45% number, that means you had one, at least one of the elements, not necessarily all three, but 45%. When the same survey was repeated three years later, it was 55%. If you compare that to the general population, they're closer to 20 or 25 percent. If you compare us to other helping professions, school teachers, for instance, uh, they're lower than we are as well. They're closer to the baseline population. But I will say that healthcare providers in general have a much higher risk, and by that I mean nurses, techs the people that we work with around the hospital, and surprisingly for some people, even hospital administrators. So it is a common, it's first, it's unfortunately common. It's getting more prevalent. It is a real entity. And then I think you asked, why do I think it's increasing? And I, I commented more broadly that I think it's related to how hard it is. but. If you really look at what causes burnout, it's actually unremitting stress. And so if the stress is greater and it's not addressed, burnout is uh, essentially inevitable from the stress. And we live in stressful environments. Absolutely. And so, you know, our audience is junior faculty um, in the Department of Pediatrics. Do you think there are specific or unique factors that face junior faculty or more generally physicians in academic medicine that increase our risk of burnout? That's a great question. And both parts of it are great questions. And I think the answer is yes and yes, unfortunately. So what's interesting is that young people who choose a career in medicine when you go into medicine, uh, if you compare the graduates of college who go into medicine versus other careers, the rate of burnout and depression is lower in those going into medicine. But within two to three years, it's much worse. So just our medical education, unfortunately, sets the groundworks for developing this. But a particularly vulnerable period of time, and the, the statistics demonstrate this, is early career. So the first part of your uh, question, which is younger physicians, yes, younger physicians are at higher risk. The, the reasons aren't well clarified yet. I have my own thoughts about it. And as a matter of fact, I gave OB grand rounds just yesterday, and I talked about how tough it is to become a young physician. All of a sudden, you're on your own. You can't turn to your right or left and look for your attending physician. You don't change services every three months, so your problems are never left behind. You're always on and you're always responsible. You also discover that for all your training, 
you're not as well trained as you thought you were and that you have a lot to learn. And that's very uh, daunting because we work so hard uh, at, at getting to where we are and then all of a sudden you realize, I may be bright or I may be well trained, but I'm seeing things that I don't know how to handle. And so you're in over your head just a little bit and you don't know when you can turn for help, when you can't, you're plagued with a certain amount of anxiety or confusion. So I think there's a lot of reasons. Uh, I don't think that's the, the total list, but that is among the reasons I think younger physicians are at risk. Academic doctors um, are at greater risk. I, uh, that's not as well shown, but I can tell you on our own survey, which looked, we did a survey here at Yale two years ago, and we compared Yale Medicine to community physicians to employed physicians like those in NEMG. The Yale Medicine doctors had the highest rate of burnout. I think it's because the complexity of the world we work in and the multiple demands on us. So for those of our colleagues who are in community practices, they may have one mission, to provide good clinical care. Well, we have three, and it's just assumed or expected that you're gonna provide great clinical care, but you also have to be a good educator and you're expected to promote scholarship. Then you add to that your desire and expectation for academic promotion and that adds a whole new layer of complexity and, and worry. So I do think uh, that those are some of the reasons. Thank you. Those are those are very very fair points, and some of the things we uh, often hear from uh, our own colleagues. One of the areas that comes up often is electronic medical records and the the burden of documentation. Do you think this is a factor in? in this issue, and are there ways to minimize the burden of documentation or stress related to using an electronic medical record? Absolutely, I think it's a contributing factor. And in fact, EMR bashing has now become a national sport, <laughs> and appropriately so, that these records were largely developed as uh, billing, coding, business um, computers and were never engineered properly for use by physicians. And they are frankly more complex than they need to be uh, for the type of needs that we have in providing outstanding care. But I want to make a point here that it's not just the EMR and that, but here's what I do want to say. Organizations, I would say there are three main components to physician well-being your organization and operational efficiencies, your organizational culture, and then our own personal resilience. EMRs are part of that organizational efficiency, but in addition to that, do you work in well-run practices or do you work in a chaotic environment? Do you have the necessary ancillary support you need? Can you practice medicine at the highest level of your license and not just be a well-paid clerk? There are a lot of things, or do you have the appropriate equipment that you need, the appropriate facilities? So our organizations have a responsibility to do better by us. And yes, I want to enhance our personal resilience and well-being, but our organizations have to do more in terms of both their operations and the culture. Now to get back specifically to EMRs, we're essentially stuck with the EMR that we have. and. I don't mean to be, but I don't want to be fatalistic about that. The first thing I would do is encourage people to learn how to use the EMR. 
and truly use some of the operational efficiencies that are available and built in, whether it's smart phrases or things like that. So first, don't give up on your training and don't get the minimal training. Invest some time to learn how to use a CMR. And once you hit a certain comfort level, invest some more time, either by turning to the Epic team for assistance or, or a colleague. And some of your colleagues, as you know, are great at this. Learn from them. Learn what their secrets are to success. So first, utilize the tool you have as best you can. But uh, we have invested quite a bit of time and money uh, more in the last year on an initiative that we call Less Time Typing, More Time Caring. And amongst the initiatives is the tap and go feature so that you only have to sign into the computer once a day. And from that point on, you can use your ID badge uh, to, to sign in. It saves 10, 15 minutes. Sometimes if you're in the ED seeing multiple patients, maybe even longer, but it, it's just such a frustrating hassle to sign in. So we've tried to relieve that burden. The second is we've gone from partial dictation to offering a complete dictation option uh, with M-modal voice recognition. Now, the reason we didn't do that sooner is because for billing and coding reasons, we needed to be able to pull out discrete data elements from the EMR. This, now we now have the ability to do natural language processing and pull that out from a dictated note. And so many of our physicians who have uh, done this have found it life-changing. The third is uh, the pilots we're doing right now with virtual scribes. And we now have 50 physicians participating in this pilot to see what impact that has. My sense is that many people who are already accustomed to voice recognition find that sufficient. But I will say that uh, for those who haven't or who are now taking on the virtual scribes, the at least preliminary information is they're really getting enormous benefit. Now, by that, what do I mean? They finish their notes. They finish their notes the same day. They can drop their uh, bills the same day. And when they go home that evening, they're not doing their, their records. And we actually have data. It's, it's not, it's, so we can actually track how much time it takes to close an encounter for, the average, for our doctors, how many hours they spend on the computer at night, how many hours they spend on the computer on the weekends, and we're watching those numbers improve with voice recognition and scribe pilots. Great. I'm, I Personally, I now use the dictation as well, and now a couple of our clinics, not all of them, have the tap and go. And the dictation has been life-changing. Um, it, it, it's now I don't spend as much time at night. Most of my notes are done at the completion of clinic, which has been great. Um, what do you, if we identify, how can we identify early signs of burnout and what can we do for ourselves as well as colleagues? I mean, I think sometimes we started this junior faculty group not only to provide resources, but also support. And I think that's something that um, I think has been helpful, but I was wondering what we could do in terms of uh, that if we see that in ourselves or colleagues. I think you're going to probably have more success seeing it in your colleagues than in yourself. That when I ask people where burnout, when I ask groups on priorities where physician well-being is, it's often very low on their list of priorities because they don't re even recognize that they're suffering. And yet across the country, people are suffering. So I would be looking for a loss of engagement, less energetic. They simply appear more blunted emotionally. Um, 
the the person just isn't the person that you know. Now, burnout and depression are totally different, but think of it almost as a depressive affect in that individual. They simply don't have the same get up and go. And then if you think about the cynicism that we discussed earlier, if all of a sudden they're behaving or, or making cynical comments or making comments about, Ugh, I just not as good as I used to be, I don't feel good about what I'm doing, I think it's time to be suspicious. And I think the single most important thing we can do to help each other is to shine a light on this. So I recently had an experience where a physician came to see me uh, from another department. He was referred by his section chief. The section chief contacted me and said, who, by the way, around here knows anything about burnout? I think I have a faculty member that may have a problem. What should I recommend? I said, why don't you ask them to come and see me? So we did. And what was really impressive to me is this really bright, up-and-coming star, fabulous individual, knew nothing about burnout had never even heard of burnout, had no idea, and he was so relieved just to learn that this is common, that he's not alone, there are things he can do just to understand the process. So I checked in with him. I saw him a few months ago. I checked in with him just this week, as a matter of fact. And he told me that it, it really changed That for a couple things. First, now that he knew it, he didn't feel badly about it. Now that he understood it, he could do take steps to address it. And what was really impressive is he shared his own personal experience with his colleagues and his trainees. And he discussed it with them so that he could begin to educate them. So I think the sense of sharing and community has been helpful. And now he is taking very concrete steps in his work life to focus on those parts of the work that he finds most fulfilling and to get away from some of those areas that he found most tedious or most stressful. An, an, another question related to that is I think that's really important to, know, to realize sometimes it's easy to see it in other people and really having that sense of community so there are people and colleagues that feel comfortable acknowledging that for each other and shedding the light. In terms of preventing burnout, what are things or certain programs or certain things that would be useful to, I think when the more you're engaged, the less, I would say the less likely, at least empirically, I know when I'm engaged, I feel like I'm less likely to feel burnout. But what do you think are ways for junior faculty as they start at a new institution to get to know that institution and figure out ways to prevent burnout? I'm not sure that just getting to know the institution is going to prevent burnout. So there, I, I think those are two separate issues. So if you don't mind, let me focus on the burnout sure. part. Um, the burnout so what happens is, is there, are pre there are predicting factors of stress, some of which we've touched on, chaotic work environments, an overload, too many expectations, too many demands, and inability to find in a, anything resembling a work-life balance. That's going to lead to stress. So if you have any of those predicting factors, you work on them in advance if you're conscious of it and thinking about that. Once you get to the, the, the point where you're feeling stressed and stressed out, that's a second area that you can intervene. And it requires a certain amount of self-awareness, of course, to do that, or at least being aware of feedback you're getting. But at that point, then you have to look into stress-reducing interventions. It could be a vacation. It could be a retreat. It could be any number of things, which I can touch on in a second. But you intervene when it's the stress level, not the burnout level. Sure. Once you've hit the burnout level, it's a little harder and takes a little longer. And the one thing we can all do 
to either prevent or treat is work on our personal resilience. And there are any number of things that we can do. And the well-being literature is actually getting increasingly robust in terms of evidence-based interventions. So part of my hesitancy when I first came to Yale to take this on heads-on was frankly in my new roles, not so new anymore, I didn't want to be seen as the soft, touchy-feely guy. By the way, I am a soft, touchy-feely guy. (laughs) But I didn't want to be categorized that way because uh, I had many other things to work on and I needed to have credibility. Now that I feel that I've earned that sort of credibility within the organization, I'm much more prepared to take this on. But also going back 10 years, too much of the conversation was about meditation and yoga. And now we have a much more... uh, textured, nuanced understanding of this, and we realize that that is, in a sense, blaming the victim. We, institution, and we as a society have brought these demands on our physicians, and we're telling you the solution is go do meditation and yoga. Now, by the way, I don't meditate or do yoga, but the evidence is that they are very effective, and I encourage people to do it. My wife does meditation for the last 40 years and has found it very helpful. It just doesn't resonate with me personally, but it's clear it is very helpful. But there are other things, um, and I have no particular order to go over these, um, but let me go over a few of them. Exercise, time for a hobby, vacation, social connections are extraordinarily important, such as your family and your friends. Having love in your life, and it can make an enormous difference. Activities like meditation, mindfulness, and yoga, And then a number of evidence-based interventions that we probably have never thought about, but the value of gratitude, for instance, keeping a gratitude journal, appreciation, forgiveness, and learning to forgive others. Not necessarily forgetting, but forgiving, cultivating optimism, and developing a spiritual practice. All of those have been found found helpful. Great. That's very helpful. To go back to something that you mentioned earlier, um, I think you mentioned that there's a difference between depression and burnout. So I wondered if you could elaborate a little bit more about that and just talk about the role in general of sort of mental health issues in physician well-being. Burnout is a risk factor for depression. So when uh, an individual is burnt out, it has both personal implications as well as organizational implications. So when I discuss burnout with senior leaders um, who by necessity have to be focused on operations and finance, I discuss the financial implications of burnout. Those who are burnt out have a higher risk of uh, safety events, higher risk of malpractice, although that's not as well studied. There's a higher turnover rate, uh, problems with early retirement, absenteeism, presenteeism. So organizations that have invested in physician well-being have typically found a very significant return on investment. So from an organizational point of view, it just makes financial sense. But I also say, but there's an ethical imperative here. What other workforce in the country, what other organization, if they were told that 50 to 60% of their employee base was burnt out and 80% were in some level disengaged, that would be a crisis for that company, and they would be doing things to address it. But from the ethical point of view, to see my colleagues suffering and having broken relationships, substance abuse, alcoholism, for instance, 
risky behaviors and broken relationships is heartbreaking, and we've got to do something about it. So it's a risk factor for depression. That is one of the – now, by the way, there are many other risk factors for depression. Not everybody with burnout gets depressed, and, of course, not everybody who is depressed had burnout first, but it is clearly a risk factor. And th those who pay attention to this, depression is a real problem. Uh, we have in medicine a higher rate of depression than the general population and than most other professions, but even more alarming is we have a, a much higher rate of suicide. And that right now there are approximately 400 physician suicides a year. That may not sound like a lot, but for the size of our workforce it is. It is a significantly higher, and uh, female physicians have a higher rate of suicide than male physicians. So I'm particularly concerned about my female colleagues. Thank you. That's, that's so striking. Um, I wanted to take a, a step back to a couple of things that you mentioned about kind of organizational demands, which I, I feel um, regularly as a hospitalist and a medical director, and some of my colleagues and nurses that we work with, will often say things or decisions are made at, at higher levels and then we have to sort of implement them. So things like, you know, moving patients through the hospital, um, making sure we're addressing family needs, all of which the principles are sound, um, but sometimes people feel a lot of pressure and not necessarily part of the process when those decisions are made. Can you, can you comment on that? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, it's tough because I don't agree, but let me let me explain. I agree with the sentiments. I, I totally understand it. I don't agree that our physicians and our caregivers should be put in that position is what I don't agree with, that control operations need to be local, and we we have to be empowered to do the right thing. I understand the need for standards. And not standard, and I don't mean standardization, but having general standards for how we do things and what our at least minimal expectations are. But that, if you want to get back to why I, th I touched earlier that it's always been hard to be a doctor, but it's getting harder. I think there are some reasons we didn't touch on before, but amongst those reasons is that more physicians have become employed. But even within our world of employed physicians, it's the loss of control and autonomy. And the things that we used to be able to influence, if not totally control, we seem to be losing that. There I would suggest that we avoid the temptation of something referred to as learned helplessness. Do not give in. Insist on, in your role as a concerned, caring physician that your voice be heard. And it gets heard by taking on responsibilities like being in charge of the hospitalist team, for instance, or in a role as a clinical vice chair of a department. You have an obligation, not just a, an opportunity, but in my mind, an obligation to look out for the needs of your patients. And you can't do that if you're not looking out for the needs of your physicians. Thank you. The, the other kind of follow-up question I had was some of the the other challenges we have with our junior faculty is we have a lot of faculty in satellite clinics that are not physically located here in New Haven. And we've been thinking about ways to keep that group engaged 
what is your what are your thoughts on on keeping folks who are obviously working very hard that are part of the the organization kind of close and so that we can continue to check in on them? Another these are all wonderful questions. Uh, and at the end of the day, I think it's about community and personal connection that I think to the extent that somebody in your department is based full-time in Greenwich or New London or even Bridgeport for that matter, but is physically isolated from the rest of it, we have created a problem and a barrier. I think there are a few things that we can do that unite us, meaning we have a shared vision, mission, values, shared guiding principles. That unites us. We're shared in our commitment to patient-centered care and excellence. I think that unites us. We are shared in our pride of being part of this university and the hospital that we work in. I think that unites us. But at the end of the day, you need a personal connection. A podcast like this is a nice way to communicate. Grand rounds, we can transmit to remote locations. That's a nice way to communicate. But nothing beats person-to-person communication. And so I think in these situations, we have got to find ways to engage and involve people as part of our core team. And and, And in two ways, though. First, wherever your site of work, to have your own community and your own relationships in that area. So if you're in the Greenwich or Fairfield area, but you're the only gastroenterologist and you don't have anybody and you're isolated, that, that's not a good long-term situation. So we need to find ways for at least our Fairfield community to come together and our Lawrence Memorial community to come together. But I also think they need to be then hooked in uh, to our community here and whether that is let me give you a quarterly social networking event, a quarterly educational event. We do come together around some of our CME programs, for instance, and the courses that we give, but those don't often have the opportunity for really networking and connection. So I like to bring people together in a connected way. That's that's great. So we wanted to to move to a different part, and you've sort of mentioned some of this already, uh, but we were curious about resources that are available for burnout prevention, treatment, or overall physician wellness at Yale. So that's one of the areas that I think we're, we're weak on and have not yet fully developed. And just hearing the question asked again has, has pointed that out to me. There are a few things that we have, uh, but I will say right up front that I think they're not sufficient. But the first is that on the Yale Medicine website, our practice website has a practice standard on physician well-being. So first, I'd like you to be aware of that, but the particular reason for that, besides it demonstrates a commitment or an aspiration, is it lists all of the various resources with live links. So whether it's to university resources, Yale Health resources, et cetera, that's the place to go uh, to to find those out. So we have it on our website. We, um, the university itself offers uh, counseling uh, services, so we can get that through the university. We offer various programs, for instance, in meditation that you can, uh, we used to have a more comprehensive program in stress management in general, but now it's largely related to meditation. Uh, There are a number of initiatives that we have underway. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples of things we've done. We, uh, but 
we have not yet brought them to scale. So this past year, we did a resilience training program. It was our pilot with 30 faculty members. We did that in conjunction with the University of Pennsylvania, where their positive psychology program is the leader in the country in the field. And we thought they'd be an ideal. And that was extremely well received, but I don't think it's something we'll be able to bring to scale. More recently, we've talked to Lori Santos, who is the Yale professor who leads who, who not leads, but who taught the positive psychology course at Yale, which was the most subscribed course ever in the history of Yale University. 1,200 students took her course, and we're talking about doing a slightly slimmed-down version of that at the medical center in the coming year. We're looking into other resilience training programs. We are in the process of developing our own website. I have affectionately called it Why Cares, and I can explain that later or some other time, but we would like to have a website where people will know where to turn to, to to listen to a podcast, to learn about an issue, to find resources. But in the meantime, the one other thing I'd like to tell people about is the AMA has a wonderful website called Steps Forward, and and you don't have to be a member to use it. Just Google AMA Steps Forward, and it brings you to this website that has extraordinarily rich uh, suggestions on dealing with some of these issues. This has been such a great, thoughtful, complete discussion. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you think our listeners would benefit from? Uh, at the risk of being a little philosophical, <laughs> but you see, so your listeners don't see much gray hair I have, so I'm allowed to be this way. Uh, that we've embarked on tough careers, but these are really meaningful careers. And we should be able to get a lot of joy and satisfaction out of our careers. And we sometimes forget to do that. We get so caught up in some of the, the issues that we've talked about that we forget what a privilege it is to be physicians, to have a front seat on life, to see daily acts of courage, to be challenged, learn, be stimulated. Uh, So I I encourage you to just stay in touch with your passion for being a physician and why you became a physician. And don't let some of this nonsense break you down or or wear you down. We've just got to stay in touch with the reasons we became doctors. And then the other thing I'm going to advise is doctors don't like to ask for help. You've got to ask for help. I personally have asked for help um, over the course of my career, and I'm not just talking about help of a colleague, I'm talking about professional assistance. And there are times that it would benefit one from getting some professional help, be it a psychologist, psychiatrist, social worker, spiritual counseling from your minister, there are many ways to do it, but I, I suspect that we as a profession uh, don't take care of the, don't don't take those up uh, sufficiently well. So I encourage you to do that as well. Great. Those are great two pieces of advice to end with. I'd like to thank you so much, Ron, for coming today and um, hope everyone enjoyed listening. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you for inviting me.